Good morning, and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. If you're ever in Uptown Columbus, we invite you to stop by and say hello. We'd love to see you, have you worship with us. We'll make you feel like family. At First Presbyterian, we are family. Learning together, growing together, worshiping together. We invite all those who are able to stand for the reading of Scripture this morning, both out of respect for God's Word and in solidarity with Christians around the world. Our first reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 17. Let us attend to the wisdom of the Word of the Lord. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. He dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. The Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from this dream in his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So, too, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Please be seated. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Thank you for Jones and Chuck inviting me to be with you. It's a privilege. And I did forget in 845, I thought I remembered. <clears throat> Five years ago, I was in western China with David Bridgman, who was on our staff. First time I'd been to China other than Hong Kong. And we were at a worship service among the Lisu people, and we were being welcomed. And all the men and women, as they gathered at the gate, welcoming us into the courtyard, were dressed in their tribal finery, these vests, and the women had their own special. And I was violating the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. I was hoping to somehow have one of these and didn't know they gave every one of us their tribal outfit. This is of the Lisu people. And they were our allies in World War II, or friends of our allies, because as pilots flew the hump from India across the Himalayas into China, if our pilots would crash or get shot down for some reason, the Lisu would rescue them and get them back to Allied lines in World War II. And they were a feared tribe. They were known as warriors. But the Chinese government now says that's the only 100% Christian county in all of China among the Lisu people. 
And this is our symbol. The symbol is a crossbow. And they were known as feared warriors. And we walked into that church compound. There is a metal crossbow signifying their past and their heritage. But this is also a reminder of how they were our friends and rescued. In fact, I had an uncle who used to fly the hump in World War II. Our text this morning is from Matthew, the last five verses. And Jesus had appointed his disciples to go up to a designated mountain in Galilee. And the eleven went up to Galilee. And it says, they worshipped him when they saw him, but some doubted. And then Jesus came up to them and he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want to ask you one question. Who gave the Great Commission? Last night I was having supper with Jones and I was reminded of a story. There was a Sunday school teacher and she was trying to prepare her class that they need to be prepared and ready and she wanted to use squirrels as an illustration. And she said, children, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to describe something and as soon as you can figure out what it is I'm describing, I want you to raise your hand and, and tell me what it is. And she said, and there the, the kids were excited and anticipating and she said, they live in trees and eat nuts. And nobody raised their hand. Sometimes they're gray and sometimes they're brown and they have a long bushy tail and the kids are looking out among themselves and nobody raised their hand. And she said, sometimes they get excited and they start chittering and their tail bushes up. And one little shy boy slowly raised his hand. He says, what it sounds like you're talking about is squirrels, but I know the answer is Jesus. Who gave the Great Commission? I remember when I was at Columbia Seminary, before they let us out on the general public, you had to do a trial sermon before faculty, and that was pretty wise. But I chose this text in Matthew 28, and I can remember even now reading in some of the commentaries, and they said it's kind of like tagged on at the later Christian community, added this to the, the Gospel of Matthew. Instead of being the Great Commission, it was almost like the great afterthought. And Jesus came to the disciples and said, oh, I forgot. How could I have forgotten? But it's your responsibility to make disciples of all the peoples of the earth. That wasn't the way it was at all. And the text I want us to look at is tied in to what we have known from Sunday school as Jacob's Ladder. The story of Jacob, and you read the context, Jacob was running away from his brother Esau. That's kind of the context going to his relative's house to try to find a bride because Esau had married locals and they were irritant to Rebekah and to Isaac. And that's kind of the context. But there are two verses I really want us to look at there. And it's really verses 14 and 15. And God's word says there, you sh shall be like the dust of the earth. Now what does dust do? scatters, goes everywhere. It permeates. It says, you through your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you shall scatter to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. I don't know which direction I'm pointing. And through you and your descendants, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Is that like the Great Commission? 
Jesus said you're to make disciples of all peoples, all nations. In Genesis 28, he's saying the people of God are to be like the dust of the earth, and their characteristic is to scatter, to permeate to the four compasses of the globe, west and east and north and south. Not the same words, but it's a similar idea of filling the earth. And you go back to God's original intent in Genesis 1, the first command in Scripture, God said, be fruitful. He said, I will bless you. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God's intent from the beginning is for this globe to be encompassed with men and women in a right relationship with himself. But we know that going through Genesis of sin and the scattering and God was grieved that he placed mankind upon the face of the globe because of all the violence and the first murder, Cain and Abel, and the story of Noah's Ark and the Tower of Babel. And God said, when Noah and his family stepped out on dry land, he says, I will bless you and you are to be blessed and multiply and fill the earth. And he six verses later he says, I will bless you and you shall multiply and fill the earth. So God's intent from the beginning. And then they come to the Tower of Babel and says, hmm, let us make our name for ourselves so we're not scattered abroad across the face of the globe. And then God confused our languages, and we've been having problems ever since in communication. I remember the first time I went to Africa, I went to Ethiopia, and there's the national language is Amharic. And I found out that most of the people I met didn't want to speak Amharic because there's a small tribal group that had all of the political power. And I found out there's 60 different languages spoken in Ethiopia. And there are more than that, I've since learned. And I learned greetings in 10 different languages. I can still say some of them. And God's heart was that for all the peoples of the earth to be blessed. And so we still have great problems of communication ever since the Tower of Babel. I'm reminded of a story. There was a mother mouse, and she was out foraging for food of all of her children. As they're coming back into the farmhouse, they're scampering up through the woodwork and coming out on the tile kitchen floor, and she checked to make sure the coast, the coast was clear, and she took her children across the kitchen floor, and all of a sudden, out of the shadows, there jumps a big black cat. Meow! Meow! But the mother mouse kept her presence of mind, and she stared down that cat and barked, woof, woof, woof! That cat was stunned, never having heard a mouse bark before, and she was able to get her children to safety in the hole in the opposite wall. And she gathered her children around her and calmed them down and said, Now, children, do you understand what I've been telling you? It's so important that you learn a second language. <laughs> I see some of the young scouts here. And I really encourage you to try to become bilingual because it opens so many doors. And I never liked language. I took Latin and made a D in high school, and then I got into Spanish because it was a crip course and made A's, didn't learn anything. Went to Emory and Oxford and took German and made three C's. And then I went to Columbia Seminary in Greek and Hebrew, and Greek was a little more interesting. And I didn't do very well in Hebrew, and all I can write now is the word shalom. But then I finished Columbia, and I went to Korea. And I fell in love with the Korean language because I got to use it daily. And Korean has the best alphabet in the world. And now it's made me, I wish I'd been a linguist, because as you learn phrases, I can tell so many different phrases in different languages, but it opens the doors. And if we'll show that respect to the people we meet, even if you see a Muslim here in Columbus, say, assalamu alaikum. Or go up, if you don't want to say that, go up and say, hi, how are you? And they'll be stunned. Because oftentimes they never get to know any other Americans in our language and culture. But let me get back to the text. Verse 15 in that story of the Jacob's Ladder. 
You, you know the Great Commission in Matthew 28. We've, we've heard it read, and I quoted it, and you know it by heart. But what's the last phrase in Matthew? Lo, say it with me. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now hold that phrase in your mind, and I will probably have to look in the text. But verse 15 in Genesis 28. First, he says, you shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall scatter like dust to the west and to the east and to the north and the south. And then in verse 15, I should have memorized it, and I would botch it if I tried to say it right now, but let me look at verse 15. And if you have your Bibles open, turn there to Genesis 28, 15. But holding that phrase in your mind, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And this goes back to that first question. Who gave the great commission? 28, verse 15. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I've done what I've promised you. What had God promised Jacob? That through his family, through his lineage, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And God promised, I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. What did Jesus say? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Dr. Ludwig de Witz used to teach at Columbia Seminary. He was our Hebrew professor. And he said, often we take that last phrase out of Matthew out of context, and we claim it as a promise. God's promise, he's with me. Lo, you're with, I'm with you always. But he said that promise is conditioned on our making disciples. His promise is presence to us as we seek to make disciples. Now, I asked the question, did who gave the Great Commission? And I'm not going into it as thoroughly as I did in the earlier service. But do you hear Jesus' words here in Genesis 28? Am I reading something into this text? Didn't Jesus just paraphrase what was already there in the beginning? And it really began of Abram and Sarah, and God says, I will bless you and make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God swore that later on in Genesis 22. He swore to Abram because you have not withheld your son, your beloved son. I swear to you that through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then God reaffirmed the same promise to Isaac in Genesis 26.4. And here he does it to Jacob in Genesis 28.14 and 15. But do you hear Jesus' words and what God says to Jacob? Or am I totally off, off base? First time I really got that clear was hearing from Dr. Ralph Winter. I'd moved from South Carolina out to Southern California. And the first thing I did is sign up a course called Perspectives in the World Christian Movement. It's being offered in Columbus right now. And I hope sometime in the future that you here at First Presbyterian will host Perspectives in the World Christian Movement. But I used to have the idea that I was glad the Jews had rejected Jesus because then it gave room for me as a Gentile. I, in fact, Matthew 15, 24, Jesus says, I've only come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that used to bother me. Well, what about me? I'm a Gentile. And it's me, it's almost like, oh, it was a great afterthought. But no, this was God's heart from the beginning. God's passion was for the people of Israel, for being a missionary nation, beginning of Abram and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob, and I could walk you through it. 
And if I had the time, I'd like to try to convince you. I ask the question oftentimes, how many of you believe that the Bible is a basis for mission? I ask this in Sunday school. How many of you believe the Bible is a basis for mission? I should see every hand. But let me turn that around. And I do. You do. Right? We all do. But how, let me turn it around. How many believe that mission is a basis for the Bible? I see one or two. When I first heard that, I said, huh? It's like a curveball, and I missed it. But I would like to try to persuade you that the Bible is a missionary book. From cover to cover, it is God's attempt to redeem and to rule over all creation. One of our former missionaries, Don McCurry, was a missionary in Pakistan. And he asked this question in the Perspectives course way back when I first took it in 1986. He said, what four chapters in the Bible have nothing to do with mission? And that was another curveball that I missed. He went on to explain Genesis 1 and 2, where God created the world and God is in perfect harmony with mankind. He created male and female. He created them. Everything is in perfect harmony. It's beautiful. In the sixth day, he says, all that he looked at, all he created is very good. So Genesis 1 and 2, there's no need for mission. Everybody was in perfect harmony with God. And then he said there are two other chapters, Revelation 21 and 22. And there you see the tree of life restored. You see there's no more crying, there's no more weeping, and no more death. There's no need for mission, but everything in between from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is a God's attempt to redeem and to rule over all his creation. To see men and women to come in a loving relationship with him as Savior and Redeemer and as Lord. And so Jesus is reaffirming what was already there in the beginning. And so in a sense, Jesus didn't give the Great Commission. But now let's look at that text. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. He's also relayed that authority to whom? As Jones took me to supper last night, we were walking around downtown Columbus and came by your marquee. And on your marquee, it says, ministers all the members. Everyone here is a minister of Jesus Christ. We affirm it in the Protestant tradition to the priesthood of all believers. So Jesus, by extension, is saying, all authority has been given to, heaven, uh, given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he says, go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. But we misunderstand that because the command is not go. The command is make disciples. Literally, it should be translated, as you go, make disciples. God is assuming that we're going all over the place. We're going to work. We're going to school. We're going to our homes. Some of us are going on business trips across the globe. But wherever you go, make disciples. The key verb there is mathutuo, make disciples. So the command is, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Give me the name of a nation. Somebody holler out a name of a nation. Pakistan. Pakistan. Give me another one. Russia, I think I heard. U.S. And see, because of the English language, and we hear nation, we think country. But Jesus was using the word ethne or ethnos, and the phrase is panta ta ethne, which means all the families or all the ethnic groups. He was not thinking Ethiopia, but he was thinking of the 60 different language groups in Ethiopia. He was thinking of the 6,900 languages that Wycliffe Bible translators tells us are around the globe. 
And that's why we need men and women to become bilingual or find other people from these other languages and cultures to be bridge people so they can present the beachhead of the gospel to all these unreached people groups. So as you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Now, who has been given authority to baptize? I won't go there, but in Sunday school, I had a couple of pictures. And this goes back to Palm Sunday 2012. I was in an unreached people group in India. And this is the first really worship service, and they're going to have a baptismal service that afternoon, about 70. And the guy next to me had become a believer in May of 2011, so he'd been a believer about 11 months. He's a drummer. He's leading us in worship. That church planter is so overwhelmed with people being baptized that this new believer is out there baptizing people. And then I asked the question, how does that fit Presbyterian polity? <laughs> I won't go further there. But baptizing them in the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all things that I've commanded you. The title of my sermon, which I gave, was To Know or to Obey. Jim Truesdale is our associate pastor up in Birmingham at South Highland Presbyterian Church. And back a year ago, nine of us from South Highland were in, in India. And Jim and I were talking. Jim's a good friend of, of Jones and their covenant group. We were talking about the Great Commission and saw what we were seeing, all these church planning going on in, in North India. And I was talking to him and saying, you know, it been me doing the Great Commission. I would have probably put it this way. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and, and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to know all things that I've commanded you. Jesus didn't say to know. He said to obey. And you've got to know to obey, but the point of being a follower of Jesus Christ is to be obedient. Chandan and Pramila were with us back in August, and this is a paradigm shift for me. But they asked the question, when did... Peter, James, and John become followers of Jesus. When he called them on the, on, the, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, did they really know who Jesus was? No. It wasn't until Matthew 16 that Peter made that great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But he'd been with Jesus for at least two years of his public ministry, and it was then that he acknowledged who Jesus was. The point that Chandan and these leaders in India are making is they're teaching people to obey first. They teach in the stories orally, like this sheet is an oral Bible story cloth. A third of the world can't read and write, and that's true of most of the people in North India, so they teach the stories orally. And so they learn the stories. And then they're asked the questions, what do you like about the story? What do you not like about the story? What do you learn about God? What do you learn about human nature? And what should we obey? And so as they're hearing these stories and learning these stories, they're teaching to be obedient. But by the time their eyes are fully open to who Jesus Christ, they're already being obedient to the Scriptures. And it's obedience leading to baptism, leading to discipleship. That's a new thought. It's a new thought for me. It's like we pray a prayer and then you become a disciple. But they're becoming disciples and then they're making commitment to Jesus Christ. I've got to close one illustration. This is a book I highly recommend. I had two boxes. This is the last one. A Wind in the House of Islam. God is doing amazing things in the Muslim world. I could tell you about stories I just recently heard in Egypt. But I want to read just one little paragraph. And this really probably comes out of Ethiopia. has something to do with Somalia. And I earmarked it so I can find it. So I hope I can find it real quickly. 
Well, maybe, uh, come on. Where's that earmark? Ah, here it is. I could tell it, but let me read it. Elias was an East African missionary living in the crowded Somali refugee quarter of a large city in the Horn of Africa. As we prepared dinner alone after a long day of ministering to refugees, he was startled at the knock of his door by a 65-year-old Somali sheik named Abdul Ahad. The sheik had come from the war-torn city of Mogadishu, Somalia. Elias was nervous, thinking this might be the night that they chose to extract their revenge on yet another Christian. When Elias opened the door, the sheik abruptly demanded, yes or no? Jesus' blood paid for the sins of everyone in the world. Elias replied, yes. The sheik responded adamantly, you're lying. And then he hesitated before saying, the blood of Jesus cannot forgive my sins. He told Elias of the violence he had committed in Mogadishu. The old sheik began to tremble and weep. I need relief from that, he said. Elias told him, if you and I agree tonight, then God will forgive you. The old sheik prayed with Elias and Abdul Ahad was saved that night. Before he left, Abdul Ahad turned to Elias, grasped his arm, and said to him, When you look at me on the street, you see my Muslim hat and my beard, and you are afraid of me. And to tell you the truth, that is why we dress this way, to make you afraid of us. But you need to know, you need to know that inside we are empty. Don't be afraid of us. We need the gospel. <laughs>